Hey everyone, welcome back to the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast by Ruan. This week's episode features guest Dr. David O. Carpenter, who is one of the world's leading scientists and researchers on EMFs and environmental contaminants and human health. Dr. David O. Carpenter is a public health physician who received his MD degree from Harvard Medical School. He is a professor of environmental health sciences within the School of Public Health at the University of Albany. He is the co-editor of the Bioinitiative Report, which is a collective review of human health and electromagnetic fields, or EMFs. He has more than 450 peer-reviewed publications and has edited six books. This man is very well-educated and just truly a leading voice on so many of the environmental toxins that really can have massive effects on our health. So we are so excited to talk to him today, and I hope you enjoy this interview. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to hello at ruanliving.com or look us up on Instagram at ruanliving. That's R-U-A-N as in non-toxic toxicliving.com. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of the critically acclaimed best-selling book, A to Z of Detoxing, The Ultimate Guide to Reducing Our Toxic Exposures, and founder of Ruan Living, the only wellness lifestyle brand that simplifies practical non-toxic living. Welcome to my podcast. Well, I feel very lucky to be able to have another conversation with you, and I thought it would be so helpful for listeners to just hear the latest scientific understanding on how our wireless emissions and maybe other EMFs are known to influence our biology. But one thing I thought I might check in on is this lawsuit that you seem to be a part of with the Environmental Health Trust against the FCC. Yes. So you were involved with that, correct? That's right. I was a plaintiff in that. You were a plaintiff in that. So for those listeners who are not familiar with this lawsuit, would you please inform us? Well, this was a lawsuit against the FCC, basically saying there's a huge amount of literature showing health effects of electromagnetic fields, especially radio frequency fields, the the fields we use for communication, cell phones, cell towers, uh, Wi-Fi, all of those things. And the FCC appears to just ignore that. And the uh, demand in in the settlement of that case was the FCC should review that evidence and hopefully then revise their standards. Well, what it's been three years or two years plus, the FCC has done absolutely nothing. And uh, there have been recent attempts to uh, prod the FCC to proceed to do what the courts ordered them to do, but without success. And this is, uh, you know, this is just inexcusable. Uh, we weren't specifically asking that the standards be changed. We asked that the FCC would look at this evidence and take it seriously. Uh, There's an enormous amount of evidence that there are adverse health effects at intensities of radio frequency radiation 
that do not cause tissue heating. Yet the FCC standard, and even then some cell phones exceed that standard, but the FCC standard is based on the fallacious assumption that there are no adverse health effects of radiofrequency radiation unless it causes tissue heating. In other words, it heats your brain. Well, you know, we know from a whole variety of studies that a cell phone head held to your ear, uh, even if it's muted, but on, will cause changes in brain metabolism. Now, that's not necessarily harmful, but it certainly is a demonstration that there are biological effects at non-thermal intensities. So we still have this great problem. It's not just a problem here in the US with the FCC. It's still a problem with the World Health Organization that has the same fallacious assumption. I and several of my European colleagues went to the World Health Organization in Geneva to beg them to review, to actually look at the literature and change their standard. And the ironic thing is I am the director of a collaborating center on environmental health coming from that very same office. Now my collaborating center is mostly focused on chemical exposures, not EMF, but we were just ignored. Uh, we weren't even treated very collegially. Uh, and the uh, WHO basically said, well, we have an official NGO of the World Health Organization, which was established a number of years ago by a previous director of the radiation unit that left WHO and immediately went to the communications industry. And while he was at WHO, he created this organization. I won't say the name properly because I never remember if it's ICNRP is the abbreviation. And these are primarily people that have conflicts of interest, have ties to the telecommunications industry. They are self-appointed. They, they really should have no status whatsoever, but because they're an official NGO of the World Health Organization, their views have been taken by organizations around the world, including the FCC, as the gospel truth. So uh, it's, it's discouraging. Uh, and then to have the FCC simply ignore the court order, uh, it's illegal, but we still haven't gotten past that issue. So why don't we dive into what the data shows us now that listeners recognize that standards set by authoritative organizations, including the FCC and the World Health Organization are maybe not, not maybe, but are not considering the latest body of science on this topic. Let's talk about what the data has shown about how the current wireless emissions influence our biology. Brain cancer is often asked about, like I just the other day was asked, so does cell phone radiation cause brain cancer? Do we know that yet? We no. know that. We've known that for probably 20 years. Uh, there have been numerous studies, including studies actually done by the World Health Organization, that show that 
if you use your cell phone held to your ear for a long time, I think in the WHO study, 260 hours uh, significantly increases the risk of brain cancer. Uh, you know, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of WHO, uh, has rated both electromagnetic fields at the power line intensity, the ELF, and the, at the radio frequency intensity as possible human carcinogens. And one of the reasons that the rating was not stronger than that, either a probable human carcinogen or a known human carcinogen, was that there wasn't good evidence from animal model systems. Now, usually when we're looking at a carcinogen, we have evidence first in animals and then only later in humans. In this case, it was the other way around. But since that rating by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the National Toxicology Institute did one of the most expensive studies they've ever done in rats and mice. And they demonstrated that exposure at cell phone intensities caused an increase in brain gliomas, the same cancer we see in humans. And it also caused an in increase in the risk of swanomas. Now in humans, swanomas that come from cell phone use are, are tumors of the, the uh, nerve in the ear. And it's not a cancer, it's a tumor, but it's growing in a bony place so that it causes deafness, causes pain and has to be removed. In the animals, the swanomas, since the whole animal was being exposed, not just the head, uh, the, the tumor was in the nerves to the heart. There's evidence now for increases in a whole variety of other cancers. A number of women, including my daughter, I caught her putting her cell phone in her bra and I hollered at her, don't you know that women that wear their cell phone in their bra at elevated risk of breast cancer? I gave her the publications. My daughter's a veterinarian. She, she's busy working on with two hands on her animals, mainly horses. And she said, I need my cell phone to answer it, but it's a convenient place to put it in her bra. I hope she stopped doing that. I'm suspicious she may not have. But uh, the, the point is that excessive exposure to radiofrequency radiation causes cancer. And it probably causes the cancer at whatever site you hold your cell phone for long periods of time. Uh, now, for example, other studies that have not been done, a lot of people use a wireless laptop on their lap. Well, that's not a very good idea because uh, your lap is close to a whole variety of things. What about GI cancers? What about testicular cancers? Uh, it is very clear that a wireless laptop held on your lap uh, causes sperm abnormalities. And I often say joking because it's, it's not really uh, something that's scientifically documented, but a man that uses his laptop on his lap in a wireless mode for about eight hours probably doesn't have to wear a condom for the next week because his sperm count goes down the tubes. 
that's the kind of thing that will get a message out because everybody cares more about their sperm count than their risk of developing cancer. But I have a cell phone. I'm not shy at using it, but I don't hold it to my head. I use it in a speakerphone mode. If it's a, just a, a foot away from your body, the exposure goes down to almost nothing. So there are simple things you can do about that. But now talking about the brain, the other very, very important disease is electrohypersensitivity. Let me tell you about an email I had this morning. This was from a man in Florida who finds that he has terrible headaches anytime that he is around electromagnetic uh, fields. He cannot use the cell phone. If he's walking down the street by a cell tower, he gets a headache and gets tingling. This is classical electrohypersensitivity. Fortunately, not everybody suffers from this, but this is almost certainly what the Havana syndrome was. People that were exposed to high intensity radio frequency fields that develop a syndrome of fatigue, uh, mental impairment, uh, headaches, just feeling ill, not being well. And you know that's been known for ages back in the 60s at the height of the Cold War, maybe it was the 50s. The Soviet Union irradiated the US embassy in Moscow with microwaves. Microwaves are the same thing as the, the radio frequency fields we use in cell phones. Everybody got very paranoid. The US Congress ordered cancer studies to be done. They didn't find any elevation in cancer, at least not that was ever reported, but that's not surprising because cancer has a long latency before it develops after exposure. But apparently some 40% of the employees at the U.S. Embassy couldn't sleep at night. They had headaches. They, they felt ill. That was all passed off as anxiety. And anxiety, of course, can cause symptoms like that. But the, this is a real syndrome. It's been studied in controlled circumstances and where it's been demonstrated that whether or not the, the person knows whether the fields are being applied, if the fields are applied, they develop symptoms. Sometimes it's altered heart rate. Sometimes it's a headache. Sometimes it's just brain fog. But uh, this is a real syndrome. Now, there's debate about how many people suffer from this. It's probably of the order of between one and 5%, maybe 9%. Uh, probably a lot of people that have these illnesses like headaches don't realize what's causing them and don't know to take any steps to reduce their exposure. We don't know of any treatment that works, but we do know that if people then go to places where they're removed from high intensity exposure radio, radio frequency fields, those symptoms go away. Is anyone collecting data on whether children also are reporting headaches when they're at schools that are near strong sources of EMFs? 
yes, there's very clear evidence that children are equally vulnerable. I've actually been involved in several legal cases where children uh, are electrosensitive and where the issue is, should the school provide them a place to learn that doesn't have high exposure to electromagnetic fields? Now, the big issue for children in schools is usually a wireless computer classroom, a wireless in general, but especially a computer classroom. If you have 20 kids on a wireless laptop with a powerful router, they're in a mini microwave oven, not enough to cause tissue heating, but at a very high intensity. And a certain number of those children develop the whole syndrome of electrohypersensitivity. In the case I was particularly involved in, it was headaches, it was nausea, sometimes vomiting, uh, and, uh, and heart arrhythmias. And uh, often the, the schools don't understand, uh, refuse to accommodate the children. Uh, these cases have been brought under the Americans with Disabilities Act. But one of the problems is that there's so few physicians and so few school administer, administrators that accept uh, the fact that electrohypersensitivity is a real syndrome, a real disease, and therefore they're resistant to doing anything about it. What have studies found about EMFs and early onset Alzheimer's disease or early onset dementia? Well, that's a very uh, less studied area. I shouldn't say less studied, but less consistent. Personally, I am not convinced that EMF exposure increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, certainly, it does cause cognitive dysfunction in people that are electrosensitive. And there's some evidence, even in children that aren't responding with headaches, that their ability to learn in the school is reduced if they're in high intensity wireless <clears throat> uh, classrooms. But uh, for, does uh, RF, radio frequency fields, really cause autism, cause uh, Alzheimer's? I don't think the evidence uh, at, at this point is uh, conclusive enough to, to draw that conclusion. Since you mentioned autism, what does the data say about its influence on autism spectrum disorder? Well, so sort of the same story. You know, one of the problems in this area of research is that when there's, there's controversy and debate, there are people that will uh, blame radio frequency fields on just about every disease. And in some ways, I think that's really unfortunate because it makes the uh, makes the public think this is sort of crazy stuff. Uh, I think the evidence for electrohypersensitivity is very, very strong. The evidence for brain cancer is very strong. The evidence for interference with male reproduction is very strong. Beyond that, there's a lot of hypothesis, but the scientific studies, even those that have been published, in my judgment, are not very convincing. 
And usually those studies are not published in high quality scientific journals. Okay. So what else has strong evidence? Brain cancer, male reproduction. I was alarmed at, and I'm sure this is very early in the research, but Dever Davis was part of a study on colorectal cancer. If you have a wireless laptop in your lap, colorectal cancer would be one of the things you would expect if you spend long hours on it. My general sense, or even though I can't say that scientific studies have proven it, is that radiofrequency fields increase the risk of all kinds of cancer. As for any other carcinogen, the cancer is a function of the intensity of exposure. And of course, this is very, it's, it's unlike chemicals. It's so much more difficult to monitor exposure because we're all in an in a atmosphere of, of radio frequency fields all the time. You walk down a sidewalk, especially now in the era of 5G, they're putting these little mini cell towers in front of about every seventh or eighth house. But the little cell towers are not generating just 5G, they're generating three and 4G, the ones we know to increase the risk of cancer. But unlike holding your cell phone to your head, that exposure exposes your whole body to these radiofrequency fields. Now the cancer we know best for the whole body exposure is leukemia. And leukemia, that evidence again is pretty strong. Uh, I wouldn't say it's as strong as the association between brain cancer and holding your cell phone to your head. But there, uh, some of the strongest studies, the most convincing studies are around Vatican radio. Vatican radio, uh, no, radio and television transmit radio frequency fields. They're at a lower frequency than, than what's used for cell phones. But Vatican radio is very powerful because it transmits all over Europe. And there are studies now from, from Italy showing that the rate of childhood leukemia is highest near Vatican radio falls off with distance as one would expect as the intensity falls off. There are many other studies coming out of Korea. I don't know of any studies that have been done in the US, but again, looking at rates of childhood leukemia in relation to living at distances from radio transmission towers of, of intensity, showing high leukemia if you live close, lower leukemia and background leukemia as you go farther away. What do we understand about how EMFs affect the blood-brain barrier, but also other barriers like for the the placenta, the gut, testes. Yes, this is a very important area of concern because, uh, and again, there, there's some evidence, it's relatively convincing, but uh, it appears that it takes a, a fairly intense exposure to radio frequency fields to change the blood-brain barrier. Now, the blood-brain barrier protects our brain from all of the nasty things that are in our circulation. Uh, so it's extremely important. And if the blood-brain barrier is compromised, uh, 
that's going to increase the risk of brain infections, of uh, a whole variety of things, including cancer. Uh, it's been studied primarily in animal model systems, and you clearly can change, you can break down the blood-brain barrier, at least transiently, with high exposure to radiofrequency fields. Whether that really occurs in humans at the intensities we are all exposed to is less clear. Uh, certainly, there have been studies in humans in the laboratory showing a disruption of the blood-brain barrier with fairly high exposures. Uh, my concern about that is I'm not even sure that those studies were approved by uh, human subjects in an institutional review board. Uh, I wouldn't want to, to be a subject in that study myself because of the dangers of disrupting the blood-brain barrier. I'm not aware of anyone that's looked at placental barriers. Again, a major concern. Uh, there are studies not so much with radio frequency as with extra low frequency, the magnetic fields from power lines, showing harm to the fetus if the mother, for example, sleeps under an electric blanket all during the pregnancy. Uh, other studies showing uh, children born to mothers that were exposed to high magnetic fields are at greater risk of developing leukemia early in life. So a whole variety of things. The, the issue here is that some are really well documented. Some are more hypothesis. We have some evidence, but not uh, the not the level of evidence that's convincing that uh, would satisfy me and, and many other critical scientists. Okay, there is something in the bioinitiative.org that said something about the blood-brain barrier, and I forget for how long after wireless exposures, and I don't know the intensity, but the effects were seen in the brain even, I believe, 50 days after exposure. Does that ring a bell? Yes, and, and that makes sense. Uh, if the blood-brain barrier is broken down, uh, first of all, you could have all of the substances that are in the blood that are normally excluded from the brain getting into the brain. And even if the barrier is re, uh, reinstated after maybe a few hours, you're going to have all these other things in the brain that you don't want there. So effects are not going to go away just immediately. I don't recall the specifics of that, even though it's in the bioinitiative report. But uh, clearly, that's a major concern. We don't want our blood-brain barrier broken down. Would you talk about what we understand about the effects of EMFs on uh, genotoxicity? Well, we know that EMF at uh, normal intensities does not damage DNA directly. But we also know very clearly that radio frequency fields cause the generation of reactive oxygen species or free radicals, which is probably the term most people know. These are uh, forms of oxygen that are reactive, that are lacking electrons. And they're reactive and they try to get balance to their electrons. 
and they damage DNA uh, indirectly. So it's not the, the RF that, that harms the DNA directly, but it's the free radicals that are generated by the RF exposure that damages DNA. And that can be demonstrated, has been demonstrated in many model systems. There's a, a relatively easy test called the comet assay, where you can uh, look to, to basically see damaged DNA uh, by looking at its migration. And if it's not damaged, you get one lump. If it is damaged, you get what looks like a comet. You get the damaged DNA uh, separating from the, the major normal DNA. That's been demonstrated again in, in many uh, cellular systems. Now, the question again is to what degree does that occur in an intact human being? Uh, because often these cellular and animal studies are done at relatively high intensities. Now, if at relatively high intensities you get DNA, DNA damage, that remains a concern for you and me as we go about our daily life, uh, even if we're not exposed to super high uh, electromagnetic fields, because clearly they can damage DNA. Now, damage to DNA, you can't have cancer unless you have damage to DNA. You, you're not going to get birth defects under most circumstances unless you have damage to DNA. So damage to DNA causes mutations. It causes all kinds of nasty things. And uh, clearly through this indirect mechanism, radio frequency fields do damage DNA. Let's talk about their influence on reproductive outcomes. So we spoke a bit about sperm, but do what do we understand about how it affects or influences birth defects? Well, anything that causes cancer is going to cause birth defects. It's the same issue. It's damage to DNA, whether it's direct or indirect. In this case, it's indirect. But uh, Birth defects are a result of damage of DNA in the, uh, the, the process of reproduction with eggs and sperm. And uh, the evidence that uh, electromagnetic fields cause birth defects is probably stronger actually for the magnetic fields than it is with the, uh, the radio frequency fields. Now, I should have mentioned when we talked earlier, the National Toxicology Program and the Ramazzini Institute in Italy have both done very sophisticated studies exposing rodents to radio frequency fields and to electromagnetic fields of lower, lower frequency. And they have demonstrated striking damage to DNA. Uh, especially the National Toxicology Program. And again, this was rodents, so their whole body was exposed, not just their head. They weren't talking on their cell phone. Uh, but they demonstrated striking damage to DNA, and you would expect that would result both in increases in cancer 
and increases in birth defects. I'm not aware, I don't recall whether or not they looked at birth defects, but uh, you would certainly expect when you have that magnitude of DNA damage that you would get birth defects. The National Toxicology Program also do, showed cancer in many, many other organ systems, not just the glioma and the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, swanomas that I mentioned earlier. How strong is the science on whether it increases the risks of breast cancer? If you tuck your phone into your bra. Uh, you know, there are, I think, two or three scientific publications. Uh, so I think the, I would rate the evidence as, as weak because we don't have many, many studies. But it's stronger than it would have been if there were no rationale for it. Uh, and we have every rationale for it. Uh, I like not to draw conclusions unless it's it's sort of inescapable. You have many different laboratories, many different epidemiological studies showing the same outcome. Uh, there are several studies that show the elevation in breast cancer, but many studies have not been done. So uh, it's it's likely, but. Uh, I certainly would advise any woman not to wear an active cell phone in her bra because of the risk of breast cancer. Uh, it's not as, they're not, there have not been as many studies as there have been on brain cancer and cell phone use, but I'm not aware of any breast cancer study that didn't find an elevation in breast cancer. So, what about on miscarriage risk? Again, not very much evidence. Some for the magnetic fields, uh, but there have not been many studies done of uh, radio frequency fields in miscarriage. Now, one of the problems is, you know, we are all exposed to these fields, especially the radio frequency fields, every day, all the time. Just think about our exposures. Uh, radio and television. If you can turn on your radio and television, that means you're bathed in those electromagnetic fields. Wi-Fi. Satellites. Satellites are generating radio frequency fields. Now, driverless cars, that's all radio frequency fields. But the big exposure uh, and uh, my Australian colleague and I published a paper several years ago showing in 2006, there was the beginning of almost an exponential rise in the background exposure to radio frequency fields. And it's it continues to go up because wireless is everything now. The rollout of 5G is a dramatic increase in exposure to everybody. So, uh, you know, how do you do a study where you expose, you compare exposed people to not exposed people? There's no not exposed person probably on the face of the earth any longer. 
So what we are doing is looking at people with greater exposure as compared to people with lower exposure. Well, you ask about miscarriage. Uh, so a gestation period is nine months. Uh, how do you how do you identify people with low exposure and people with high exposure and follow them for at least nine months to see whether or not there are miscarriages? And miscarriage is certainly not uncommon, but you would need thousands of people in the low exposure and thousands of people in the higher exposure category in order to get results that would be statistically significant. Uh, the animal evidence in miscarriage is not strong, but again, there's some evidence. Uh, I, I wouldn't consider at the moment that the concern about miscarriage is, is all that great. I, it was just reminding me of someone I had hired who, I hired him to measure my home of EMFs and he talked about having been hired by a large pharmaceutical company because they suspected EMFs were influencing their vaccine efficacy. Are you aware of any of those studies? No, I'm not aware of that, but again, uh, I wouldn't be that surprised. A vaccine effectiveness is dependent upon the immune system. Uh, there are a number of, of studies that have been done, and including some that I've done, that have shown that chemical exposures, a chemical that reduces immune system function, will reduce the effectiveness of vaccines. And uh, there hasn't been a lot of work on uh, EMF effects on the immune system, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were some effects on the immune system. And if there were, if the immune system is, is boosted up, then you would expect more allergies, uh, more asthma, more that kind of response. If the immune system is suppressed, then you would expect less uh, response to a vaccine, more infections, more cancer, more of all these other diseases. But again, I don't think the immune system has been studied very well. Again, the Bioinitiative Report has a chapter on it, but you know, it, it needs much more investigation. And the problem investigating humans is it gets increasingly difficult because we have nobody that's not exposed. What would you say to a listener who's pregnant and sleeps with a electric blanket? Turn the electric blanket off. You can turn it on before you get in bed, but turn it off. There, uh, an electric blanket doesn't generate huge magnetic fields, but it's close to your body. And there is absolutely no need for an electric blanket. An old quilt does perfectly well. And, you know, the, I've always advocated not to dramatically change your lifestyle, but do little things that would reduce your exposure and especially reduce the potential harm to your child. And not using an electric blanket, or at least not having it on while you sleep, is just one of those things that uh, you don't need to do. 
it's interesting, a long time ago, I, I was the administrator for this New York State Power Lines project that focused on magnetic fields from electricity. And I was uh, uh, interviewed, I, I made a number of public statements about the danger of using electric blankets uh, for cancer, for birth defects and other things. And uh, I was threatened to be sued by, uh, I've forgotten the company that made electric blankets. And uh, nothing sort of happened of that. But a year later, that same company came out with a new electric blanket that they advertised as being low in magnetic fields. And it was very interesting because in an electric blanket, the way they used to make them at least, the wires would go sort of like sine waves and <clears throat> the magnetic fields have a direction. So what they did, instead of having space between them, they put the wires close together and that canceled the magnetic field and dramatically reduced it. Wow. Have you been, you've, uh, in one of the intros for a prior conversation we had for the podcast, I described, it was probably for the first one, I described you as a public health hero that everyone should know about because you've done so much for public health over your career, including testifying for many to protect children, schools, communities, and, and you've done so much. How often have you been threatened with litigation or threatened in other ways? Probably pretty often. Pretty often. Uh, let me tell you the most recent one, which has just this past year. Uh, a lot of my research, I've been involved in EMF issues, but it's not been my primary research. My primary research has been health effects of polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs. And uh, PCBs were manufactured by Monsanto. I've also been very much involved in Roundup and litigation on both of them. Mon Roundup is manufactured by Monsanto. Uh, and I've been uh, an expert witness in many cases on both PCBs and Roundup. And uh, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, Monsanto foiled freedom of information request, my university, for all of my activities related to the Native American population I've worked with most in Northern New York. And so they came and took files, cabinets full of data. And then a few months later, they foiled again, asking for all my invoices for charges that I had made on these legal activities. My university stupidly just freaked out. They put me on quotes, alternate assignment, which meant I could not come to my office. I was not supposed to talk with my students. At that time, I had eight PhD students. I wasn't supposed to talk with colleagues, anybody at the university. I wasn't allowed to teach my classes. My two federal grants were blocked from me for a period of time. That went on for nine months until last February, when finally my university cleared me of any wrongdoing and I was allowed back in my office, my grants were reinstated. But you know, 
the big thing, I wasn't terribly harmed by this, except my reputation. Everyone thinks if you're not allowed to go to your office, you're guilty of sexual misconduct or something like that. And I was sort of thinking at my age, that was probably almost a compliment that people would think that. <laughs> but uh, it can be bullying. It can be uh, uh, just misbehavior of any sort. So, of course, my reputation was harmed. But uh, in the end, I came through smelling like a rose and Monsanto came through like the big bad bully that it is. Now, I've been involved in litigation around EMF issues as well. Uh, those have not been as successful because the courts are not, they depend on the FCC, they depend on the WHO. And they don't pay too much attention to the scientific evidence that I've been talking about here because they have these federal and international agencies that have not accepted the harm that electromagnetic fields cause. But it's a fight. I did, I did get a, uh, an award as a Hudson hero for the Hudson River. And I also got an award. I should show you, may I should show no, you? Please do. I got this award. <laughs> Making good trouble. Remember John Lewis? Yes. Making oh, good trouble. That is great. Oh, I love it. I love that. That's so good. And I hope to continue making good trouble. Oh, I love that. Whether it's EMF or PCBs or Roundup or whatever. Thanks for listening. For podcast show notes, visit www.ruanliving.com, spelled www.ruanisinnontoxicliving.com. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast. And if you'd like to support it, please like it and share it. Until next time.